This podcast contains discussion about adult topics. Use your judgment if there are little ears around. We'll also be discussing some things that can be distressing for people of any age. Take care. Welcome to Doing It. This is a podcast made by Family Planning Victoria. FPV has been running for over 50 years now. We run lots of education programs for communities and medical professionals across Victoria. We also run sexual health clinics in the city and Box Hill in Melbourne. My name is Anne and I'm part of the FPV schools and community team. We go to schools and run classes for all year levels on bodies growing up, puberty, sex, reproduction, relationships, consent. This podcast is for parents and carers of school-aged children so we can share what goes on in a relationships and sexuality education class and help support these sorts of conversations at home. Today, I'll be talking to Family Planning Victoria Schools and Community Manager, Brendan Bailey. Before starting with FPV, Brendan worked developing and delivering education around trauma-informed practice. Prior to that, Brendan worked as a secondary school teacher, including eight years working in alternative and community schools with students who didn't fit in to mainstream schooling. Trauma-informed practice has recently become an education buzzword. It means working with the understanding that some students have experienced trauma and that this will impact their behaviour and capacity to engage in a class. We know that when we go into a class that some of the students and some of the teachers have experienced sexual abuse. So how can we use the principles of trauma-informed practice to manage this? Brendan, thanks for running us through a really brief introduction to trauma-informed practice. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thanks for having me. I've heard so many excellent uh, episodes of the podcast already. It's a privilege to actually be on one. So my first question to you, can you give us a really quick definition and overview of what trauma-informed practice means? The short answer is no, but the longer answer is yes, but because it's kind of complicated. In order to do so, I obviously first have to provide a definition of trauma and what is trauma. Trauma-informed practice is simply the idea that the classroom or the workplace or wherever we are trying to implement trauma-informed practice can be a space for healing, can be a space where uh, we can offset some of the impacts of trauma and try to help that kid, person, whoever it might be, experience a little bit of post-traumatic growth. When it comes to defining trauma, though, it's a little bit more complicated. There are numerous definitions and ways that we can understand trauma. Essentially, trauma is an overwhelming experience that undermines the individual's belief that the world is good and safe. This happens in a few different ways. Uh, psychologists talk about what they call simple trauma, which I think is the biggest misnomer ever because there's no such thing as a simple trauma. But when they're talking about simple trauma, they're just talking about trauma that happens as a one-off. So it could be a car accident, it could be a natural disaster, it could be an assault. They also talk about complex relational trauma. So that's trauma that happens usually over a long period of time, often with a person involving a person that the victim survivor knows already. Um, That can be in a lot of ways more complicated, but it isn't always the case that it is more complicated. We also talk about secondary traumatic stress, and that's something really important um, for any parents who are looking after a kid who's had a traumatic experience or teachers working in trauma-impacted systems because people who work in trauma-impacted systems or around people who have been through a lot of trauma can start to take on the symptoms of trauma themselves. So they can suffer extreme escalation, they can suffer burnout, they can suffer compassion fatigue, those kind of things, because they've been working with those trauma-impacted kids. It's really tricky, that definition of simple yeah. trauma, because something that an adult might define as tra- a traumatic experience 
might actually not be for a child or might yeah. not be for another person. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you for touching on that because it's so important for us to remember that trauma isn't the event. Trauma is the individual's response to the event. So you and me, Anne, might be driving along the freeway and we might be involved in a horrible car accident and you might get out of that car accident and be like, oh, that's a pretty big deal. Oh, I've got to go go to work, got to record some more podcasts. Whereas I, on the other hand, might be totally trauma impacted and I might not be able to get into a car again. I might not be able to um, even think about being in a car. Might, the sound of cars might trigger me into panic attacks, those kind of things. So what is a traumatic event for one person might not be the traumatic event for the other person, which is a really helpful thing because it actually allows you to go, okay, so what, is, what does Anne have that I don't have? Um, but uh, in this circumstance, the answer would be resilience. But of course, you can't just sprinkle on resilience. Um, we have to attempt to try and recreate a world for those kids in which their world is good and safe once again. So what does research tell us about the likelihood of school-aged children experiencing abuse? In order, in order to, to talk about the prevalence of trauma, we need to talk about the ACE study. The ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. It's a foundational study in trauma. Uh, it was done in the late 70s and early 80s originally. And it essentially it was done by a, a health insurance corporation. And they looked at these adults and they were, they had, were working with some really smart um, psychologists. And they, these psychologists said, we need to look at what happened to these people in their childhoods. And so they looked and they did the research. Uh, when you do the ACE study, they essentially hand you a list of traumas. And that trauma can include abuse, can include neglect, can include sexual abuse, um, includes uh, drug use in the family, incarceration in the family, a whole host of things. And they don't ask you to indicate which ones happened to you. They just ask you to share your number, how many of these things happened to you. If you have an ACE score of three or more, the chances of extremely strong that as a kid you had behavioral issues at school um, that you were suspended from school that you had issues um, that you either your arousal so in terms of how stressed you got either meant that you get hyper aroused so you um, lashed out so you swore at teachers you threw things across the room that kind of thing or you were hypo aroused so you closed down and you went numb and you withdrew so the ACE study um, there's been a whole heap of studies since the original ACE studies found that about 40 percent of all respondents had at least one adverse childhood experience, whereas more recent, a more recent Australian meta-analysis suggested that the number in Australia was somewhere between 38% and 44%. It's got at least one. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that 44% of kids in your classroom are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, because remember that trauma isn't the event, it is the response to the event. But this suggests to us that when we are working in a classroom with kids or when you're working with groups of young people, all of our efforts should be trauma-informed because essentially we don't know. And I've got to talk about that a little bit because we don't know what kids have, um, what traumas kids have been through for a number of different reasons. Often, if we're school teachers, for example, I know you have a number of school teacher listeners there. If we're school teachers, the welfare coordinator, wellbeing coordinator, or the principals haven't told us because there are confidentiality issues. Often parents won't tell the schools because there are shame involved. Often the kids haven't told the parents for the same reasons. And often, because of the way trauma is stored in the brain, often kids aren't able to remember exactly what's happened to them. They just bear the scars in their bodies. And so we don't know. We don't know what kids we're working with and what kind of traumas they've had in their lives. So it's so important to treat all kids as if they've been through some kind of trauma. And really, when it comes to trauma-informed practice, it's just about teaching kids, giving kids the skills 
to regulate their own emotions better. And I don't know about you, but I kind of feel like every kid needs that. Every, every let's be honest, every adult needs to have to improve their skills at regulating their emotions mm-hmm. when things get a bit full on. And it sort of leads itself to what we teach in very early years, primary school with early warning signs. Yeah, yeah absolutely. How do you feel in your body when something bad happens or if this event happens, how does your body react? And is that telling you that something is wrong? Yeah, And, and if that, you know that something okay. is wrong, you should tell a grown-up. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that too is a cornerstone of trauma-informed practice because trauma trauma is stored, the, the scars of, of trauma are stored in the body and they first come out in the body. That's because our bodies are the first place that we recognise stress. And this is why it's such a fantastic thing that family planning and teaching that at the really early years. Um, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, um, who wrote a book called How Emotions Are Made, tells us that we feel emotions first in our bodies and our bodies send a signal to our brains and our brains decipher it. But if you've got a trauma-impacted kid, they feel it in their body, they're not sure what it is and they just flip out and they can, again, get hypo-aroused or hyper-aroused. I mentioned that a couple of times. So behaviours we might see from trauma-impacted young people, it might be lashing out, it might be withdrawing. Are these always red flags for teachers or for parents and carers? If I've got a kid who either lashes out like that or has these huge eruptions or totally shuts down, it's not a red flag, but it is an orange flag because all behaviour, and this is another tenet of trauma-informed education, that all behaviour is communication. And those kids with those behaviours are trying to tell us something they don't necessarily have the language for. I've never had a teenage kid come up to me and say, actually, Brendan, I'm behaving in this way because I have a long history of childhood traumas and I just don't know how to express it. No, they don't do that. They, they swear at you, they throw chairs, they you know, shut down and won't say anything to you. So all behaviour is communication. And what those kids are communicating to you in that moment is that they have unmet needs. And those needs, um, in my former role when I was working with the Berry Street Education Model, which is a model of trauma-informed practice, uh, we defined those needs um, as physical, emotional, cognitive, energetic, and spiritual. And of course, um, Berry Street was a a secular organisation, so we simply define spiritual as a connection to something greater than itself. So if you've got a kid who always graffitis things or tears apart things and ruins the toys display or something, um, they're not feeling connected to their environment. They don't feel that sense of belonging. They don't feel like they're connected to something greater than themselves. That's a sign of an unmet spiritual need. And so what you can do to help make that kid, help that kid meet those needs in constructive ways is get them involved in the classroom, give them a leadership role. Uh, if you've got a kid who flips out and throws things, that can be an unmet physical need. So you can do something as simple as giving that kid a chance to do some running around before they come into the classroom or before they settle down for dinner or for whatever you're trying to, to do with them as a parent. You've mentioned a couple of strategies there, but what else can parents and carers and teachers do to support trauma-impacted young people? In order to answer that question, I've got to talk a little bit about the brain, um, which is one of my favourite things to talk about. So in trauma-informed practice and in psychology in general, we divide the brain up into sections. And so uh, we have at the really base of our brain, that's the brainstem, that's often known as the survival part of the brain. The back interior part of the brain, uh, we sometimes call that the limbic system or the emotional part of the brain. And over the top, we have the cortex, which is the thinking part of the brain. So hidden in the back of the brain are two little parts of the brain called the amygdala. You might've heard of this one already because the amygdala is sometimes conceptualized as the brain smoke detector. 
And so the amygdala is constantly looking for danger. And when it finds that danger, it sends messages to the other parts of the brain and the other parts of the brain react. And we react in those ways we know we've already heard of the fight, flight, freeze response. When we're working with trauma-impacted kids, it's our job to try and soothe that amygdala because their amygdala is hyper-aware. Trauma-impacted kids, as a rule, are fantastic at reading the emotions of other people. So the first thing we need to do is make sure that we are calm, we are in a headspace where we can really help those kids because they pick up, they're so good at picking up on our moods because their survival has depended on their moods for so long, on the moods of people around them for so long. So they pick up on our moods really quickly. So we need to make sure we are calm, we are in our own thinking brain, we're de-escalated. People always want to know what to do when the kid flips out. Now, really 80% of your work with trauma-impacted kids is proactive. It's setting up environments that are de-escalating, that are calming, that are routine-rich. But the other thing we can do when those kids do have those meltdown moments, when they do flip out, essentially that's because when the amygdala goes off, all the action in that person's brain is in the limbic, the limbic and emotional part of the brain and in the brainstem, the survival parts of the brain. There's next to no action in the brain in the prefrontal cortex. And this is why when you're in the middle of an argument with your partner or your kid or whoever it is, and you say, calm down. Never in the history of human arguing has ever, anyone ever gone, you know what, I will calm down. Thank you for that excellent advice. Telling yourself to calm down like that is a top-down process that happens in the cortex, but the cortex is totally offline at that point. We and it's also underdeveloped in young people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the cortex doesn't really start coming online until the age of five. And it is not fully developed until, until the age of 25. So the cortex is, is still developing. And in the teenage years, you're absolutely right, and thank you for pointing it out. Um, in the teenage years, there's more action happening in the brain in the limbic and emotional parts of the brain because those kids are essentially going through their um, two to three development again. So when you're between the age of two and three, you're developing those emotional responses. You're figuring out who to attach to. And when you go through that again when you're 13 or 14. And that's why teenagers sometimes act like two-year-olds. So they have this cortex that flips off really quickly, especially with trauma-impacted kids. And then it's our job to try and soothe them back into getting that back online so we can have that difficult conversation. So we can ask them, what happened then? What can we do next time? The way you do that is with, with patterned repetitive rhythmic activities. This comes from Bruce Perry's work. And it's fascinating stuff. Um, Bruce suggests that when we are looking to calm ourselves, we're looking to recreate those things that happened in those really early years, early months, early weeks even of our development. Anything that has a rhythm to it, drumming is another good one, or bouncing a ball up and down, even colouring, even knitting, those are pattern repetitive rhythmic activities. So they can help calm us down a little bit and get us back into that thinking brain. It's particularly pertinent at the moment. I think we could all identify COVID as a potentially traumatic experience for, for a, lot, a big part of the community and a lot of school students at the moment. So what ideas from trauma-informed practice can parents and carers use? Uh, yeah. Especially when talking about sex and sexuality with their children. Yeah, I guess there's two parts of that, that question there. And you're absolutely right. Laura Vandernutlipsky, who wrote a book called Trauma Stewardship, which is like the Bible on trauma-informed self-care, wrote a follow-up book called The Age of Overwhelm, suggesting that the age we're living in now is already overwhelming and we're already, most of us, on amygdala alert. And that is before COVID hit in. And so I, I would suggest 
that now we were a little bit anxious as a society before that, and now we're a lot more. Everyone's anxiety has just lifted a little bit. So how you deal with a trauma-impacted kids in an environment that is already escalating is to try and give them as many opportunities to de-escalate throughout the day as you possibly can and to make sure their workspace and the things they're doing are de-escalating on a really simple level. So many of our kids lack a spiritual connection to something or an energetic connection to something and having animals around is a fantastic way to help those kids de-escalate. This is why at the start of lockdown one way back in last March, the animal shelters were cleaned out. Everyone went and got a puppy. If you've got really young kids having a space in their house, like a sensory, like a tent or a small cozy space where they can go and have their books or squish balls, fidget tools, um, things like that that can help de-escalate. If you've got older kids, you can just talk to them about what helps them de-escalate. So if they're, if they're on Zoom for like three hours and they're cracking it and they're getting frustrated, then it's time to take some time out. I sort of smushed two questions together there. We're sort of um, talking about COVID, which is this baseline thing that everyone's dealing with. But we know parents and carers are anxious about talking about sex and sexuality with their children. So it's yeah. another layer of uh, a conversation that we're encouraging parents and carers to be proactive <laughs> about. But maybe people feel like that's not the right time. So is yeah. it possible to have a de-escalated neutral conversation about sex and sexuality with your children at the moment? Yeah, it is. You just got to do the work to de-escalate before you, before you crack that conversation open. So if you're sitting across them at the breakfast table and they're on their phone scrolling through and they're in their own little world and you're like, hey, let's talk about how babies are made, they're going to freak out. But if you go for a walk with them, again, walking is a great um, de-escalating activity, or if you're in the car side by side, we always recommend these conversations ahead side by side if you can. Um, always at their level, so you're not staring over the kid, you're at their level in as much of a de-escalating environment as you possibly can manage. You can give them a fidget tool or some colouring in to do uh, while they're talking. That was a, it was a big thing for me to overcome because when I started teaching, I was always like, that kid's not paying attention because they're colouring in or they're doodling. That's helping keep them de-escalated. That's helping keep that kid in the classroom. So if you've got kids who like, like to doodle or colour in or draw, let them do that while they're having that conversation. It helps keep them de-escalated. It's a funny one because... The biggest challenge we have to deal with as people who are having awkward conversations with our kids is that they don't really want to have those conversations with their parents. You need to establish yourself as that person who they can come to, but let them talk. So open a conversation with something like, hey, what do you know about this? Or what do you think about this? Have you heard about this? What's going on with that? And let them lead the conversation. And they might shut it down. And that's a signal for you to go, all right, I'm going to come back to this after a little bit. You can do a little bit of strengths talk. So you can go, I know you're really good at talking about this and this and this. Can we use those strengths now to talk about, talk about sex and sexuality? The other thing I will say is routines are really important. In fact, routines are what help kids feel safe. I work really closely with a behavior analyst, a forensic behavior analyst. And she says, when you're dealing with trauma-impacted kids, you need to remember three words, routine, routine, routine. So setting up those routines helps those kids feel safe and safe kids behave better and they're more likely to have those difficult conversations. After about 20 minutes, the brain starts to not be so good at taking on new information. And so that's time to have a bit of a break. How can we draw on trauma-informed practice to take better care of ourselves? I'm glad you mentioned that, Anne, because it's perhaps 
the most important thing to think about when you're working in trauma-impacted systems. And like we said earlier, the whole world is a bit of a trauma-impacted system at the moment. So know that we too have those five unmet needs, that we have physical needs, emotional needs, cognitive needs, energetic needs, and spiritual needs. And to make sure that we're not letting go of our own needs because we're looking after other people. I'd also really suggest strongly um, the research tells us that when we're involved with other people, we are less likely to suffer burnout. We're less likely to suffer compassion fatigue. We're less likely to isolate ourselves, obviously, but also to suffer from a whole host of mental illnesses, to reach out, to join groups, to, even though you don't really want to at the start, say, yes, I will go to that Zoom party online birthday thing or whatever it is. I know you don't really want to, but trust me, getting involved, even if you don't feel like it at the time, can really help. Also, I, I want to say that we have a tendency, especially people who work in teaching, people who are carers, foster carers, and people who work in resi care units, it's kind of seen as a vocation and that we're giving all to our kids. But you can't continue doing that if you don't stop and rest and take care of yourself first and foremost. Those kids deserve more than half of you, than a shell of you. You need to give your best to those kids. And the way that you do that is making sure that you have those needs taken care of. That's a great note to finish on. Fit your own face mask first. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Thanks so much for talking to me, Brendan. And it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much to Brendan Bailey for that discussion about trauma-informed practice. Some key things which stood out for me in this discussion are trauma is an overwhelming experience that undermines a person's feelings that the world is good and safe. Trauma is about the response to different events. People all respond differently to events in their lives. Children don't always have the language or skills to explain how they're feeling. Creating routine is a great way to de-escalate trauma responses. Brendan mentioned his former work with Berry Street Education Model. I can put a link in the show notes. For more information about Family Planning Victoria, including educational resources, go to fpv.org.au. You can follow FPV on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. Contact me directly at doingit at fpv.org.au. Subscribe to the podcast. Like it if you like it. Thanks so much for listening.